You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, if we learn nothing from the gospel lesson this morning, it's we do learn this, if nothing else, that Jesus has a way of ruining funerals. Because there in the gospel morning, this uh, gospel lesson this morning, you see a perfectly good display of human grief, suffering, pain, and misery coming out of the gates of Nain. You see a young man that's dead in the prime of his life, a weeping widow who's lost her only son, the last of her family. You see a throng of uneasy mourners who are powerless to ease the sharp edge of loss that's cutting through the widow's soul. And so what do you do when you see this throng pouring out of the gates of Nain? What do you say? Perhaps you think that it would be appropriate to say some sort of words of comfort or reassurance to the widow, kind of like how you might when your kid skins his knee, you know. But then you see the lifeless body and then you think better of uttering some sort of empty platitude. Because this person... This life that once filled the world with work, conversation, and companionship is no more. He's not coming back. The loss is real. And so ultimately, what can you say? Nothing, it turns out. You weep with those who weep. You acknowledge that from this point on, nothing will be the same for this widow who has lost everything. But Jesus isn't going to have any of this. Now, out of respect for the dead, you ought to move to the side of the road to let the funeral procession pass by you, right? Take off your hats if you have them on. But Jesus doesn't let that happen. He makes the funeral procession stop for him. He threatens the tender despair of the moment by marching through the mourners and right up to the weeping widow and says the one thing that's forbidden at any sort of wake funeral, or committal. He tells the woman, do not weep. St. Luke writes, Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. Now, you or I, when we're at a funeral, might think to ourselves, well, it's, it's good to say our last goodbyes to the body before you know, the casket is finally closed. But Jesus speaks to this body and gives it a command. And he expects this lifeless flesh to hear him. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now you know, dear saints, what Jesus wants more than anything else. He wants to give resurrected life to dead sinners, which is to say that he ruins funerals, or at least a a pagan idea of what a funeral should be. Here you see death's dread procession must stop when Jesus stands in the way. Now the wages of sin must force each and every one of you into silence, ultimately. But all of that silence is shattered and set aside when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks the words of everlasting life.
Now, there are two kinds of works that are the greatest of all of Jesus' miracles that we learn about in the Gospels. And though these works may seem remotely related to one another, the events of Holy Week uh, prove that they're bound up. You can't have one without the other. Of course, I'm talking about the first work that God does for you in creating faith through the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And then the second work is giving life to the dead. These are the chief fruits that were obtained by Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection. And yet, though nothing higher or greater could be given to sinful men, people just like you and me, we somehow have a way of overlooking them as unimportant. We're thinking to ourselves that forgiveness and resurrection aren't exactly what I need to hear about right now, today, in my life. And in fact, this was the problem of a lot of people in the New Testament. So think back, if, if, if you can, to the fifth chapter of St. Saint, Saint Luke, uh, because there you have Jesus uh, uh, in the full swing of his ministry, after his baptism, uh, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's calling his disciples, and they're coming to follow him, and they're learning from him. But then the crowds start to gather. And they start to gather after he does one thing in particular. Uh, he's in Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. Uh, she has a fever, and Jesus rebukes the fever, and the fever leaves her. But before you know it, as he's resting there in the house, one person after another starts coming to him. And Jesus has compassion on them. He casts out their demons. He cleanses their leprosy. He heals many. But the crowds were pressing in on him so much so that he had to go from that town to the next and then to the next and then to the next to stay in front of the crowds before they catch up with him. The point is that Jesus wanted to first and foremost to preach. And I'm sure you also remember the paralytic who was lowered through the, you know, the roof, the hole in the roof so that he, by his friends so that he could be healed by Jesus. Now the expectation is that here is a man who is, who is crippled and lame, he cannot walk, and now Jesus will heal his body. But then Jesus shows us what he's really all about when instead of healing the man's body, he does something even, even more surprising. He looks at this man and says, I forgive you. <laughs> he forgives him his sins. And then he goes on to heal the man's body, but the healing of his body wasn't an end in and of itself. Rather, it was to show the grumbling scribes and the Pharisees that he has divine authority to speak and to act as God upon this earth, especially to forgive sins. Now, the devil is going to, to try to tempt us. He's going to tempt us into thinking that we need something other than the forgiveness of sins, some other gospel, something, something that's more seemingly, in our own minds, more applicable. And he'll even convince you that it's worth forfeiting the peace that you have in your, according to your conscience when you hear the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's worth forfeiting that if you can have, possibly, at this moment right now, wealth and health. And so he'll want you to demand that God justify his kindness to you by satisfying your wants and your desires of the moment. 
that the Lord isn't worthy of your faith if, if you're suffering from a tight budget, the dysfunctions of family life, or, or maybe even a lingering illness. And so we're tempted to become like the thousands who, even though they had received from Jesus more than their fill of bread and fish, who, even though they received all of that, insisted upon making Jesus their bread king, a mere dispenser of bodily goods to perpetuate this life that we have right now. But to worship this Jesus is to worship an idolatrous image of Jesus. It's to worship our bellies. Yes, dear saints, your daily bread does come from Jesus' hand. But Jesus wants you to know that there are greater things than daily bread in this life, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And that's why, even though it was more than possible for Jesus to arrive before the death of the young man who, had, who was being you know, born out of Nain in a funeral procession, even though it was more than possible for him to, to arrive beforehand to heal him before he died, he didn't. He waited, just as he waited for Jairus' daughter to also die. And he even waited for his good friend Lazarus to die. All three of these people had everything taken away from them in the prime of their lives. Everything. And the same is true for us, that the best that this life has to offer can in one moment be taken away, just as Job had everything taken away from him. Our friends, our family, our money, our possessions, even our own lives may be required of us this day. And yet, as Christians, we confess, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, isn't that an an amazing expression, that the name of the Lord continues to be blessed even if everything, everything imaginable is taken away. It's blessed because Jesus waited. It's blessed because he waited for these three young people to die so that he could prove himself to be greater than sin and prove himself to be greater than the wages of sin, which is death. And yes, it's true what Martha said at Lazarus' death. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But this, dear saints, is not a mark against Jesus' name. He waited so that he could tell Martha and also that he could tell you today a promise for your comfort. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then Jesus brought an end to her tears. And according to his word, the young man, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus had everything given back to them. Now, by what right or authority can Jesus do this? By a mere utterance from his lips, bring life to the dead. Why is Jesus greater than the wages of sin? It's because he's paid in the price He's paid the price in full. He suffered a sinner's death under the relentless wrath of God that he bore on the cross. He suffered your death. And then he promised you, it is finished. There's nothing left to pay. Why is Jesus greater than death? It's because he has overcome it. 
The grave could not contain him. Christ our Lord is risen. And unlike the three people who had their temporal bodies restored, we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so Jesus, who is the Lord who lives today, who has overcome both sin and death by his own death and resurrection, continues to speak the words of life. And dear Madison, in your baptism, this is what has happened for you today. The risen Jesus has stepped in the way of your death to bless you with life. He's bound your own death to his death. So now it is a death to sin. So that your guilt is no longer counted against you. And so now, with all of the saints, you know that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I'm sad to say, dear Madison, that Jesus has ruined your future funeral. (laughs) He's turned it from being an occasion of abject despair and sadness into being a sleep that will end. When Jesus calls you by name and says, Dear Madison, I say to you, arise. Then on that glorious day, Everything that has been taken away will be eternally restored, just as Jesus had promised. And so you see, dear saints, that Christian funerals are unlike any other funerals that you will see out there in the world. Now, it's always funny to kind of see how the rest of the world attempts hope and comfort in the midst of death by whatever means they may come up with. Usually, it's by ignoring the fact that someone actually has died, and so everything will sort of be about stories about the person's life. It'll be a celebration of life. Uh, They'll talk about all of the memories that they have and the memories that will live on even though this person has died. And yet they can't rid themselves of the reality of loss. There's still a body that needs to be buried. And even given enough time, a person's place and the memories of their loved ones The friends and family will be lost. And so in this way, every every funeral outside of Christ ends in silence. But this is not the case with Christian funerals. Jesus insists upon getting in the way. And he speaks unthinkable words of comfort in the promise of resurrection. And in this way, he grants enduring hope according to which you bless the name of the Lord, even if everything is taken away from you. Now, I'm not saying that the next time you're driving and you see a funeral procession coming, that you should stop your car in front of the funeral procession. (laughs) That's Jesus' job, not yours. In fact, it's a good thing. It's a good work to show respect for the dead, for the person that God the Father has created, and also to weep with those who weep just as Jesus wept and mourned with his friends at the death of Lazarus. But nevertheless, Christian funerals are different in this way. You cannot remain silent. You must sing Easter hymns. You must confess the creed. You pray the Lord's Prayer. You hear the preaching of the risen Christ and rejoice because your hope is based on this Lord who brings forth life from death. Amen. 
May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 915, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 1045 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 830 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 930 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.